I'm your host, Josh Allen, and welcome to episode 11 of Still Rolling, the podcast that delivers everything and nothing in equal measures. Can you believe it? Roger Horrocks, ladies and gentlemen. Damn, I can say this because he's not here right now, but I actually cannot fathom how this man gets his shots. I'm in awe of his work, as are countless others after the BTS was released from the show. If you've caught the behind the scenes after it came out and you've got David Attenborough talking about the various things, you get to see just how much goes into this work and it just blows my mind. He just has the most normal and humble outlook to what he does despite dedicating weeks and months to what might only be minutes of footage. So, you know, if you haven't worked it out, he's one of the team of cinematographers on Blue Planet. And amidst the plethora of wildlife programmes he's been involved in, that's definitely the highlight. He's coming out for his second BAFTA for the show, and, you know, the visuals speak for themselves. It's an absolute honour to have him on the show. I'll just let us get on with it. Thank you very much for joining us today, Roger. How are you doing, man, first and foremost? No, thanks, Josh. Actually, really well. Um, back up and working again after a bit of a layoff with COVID, but um, yeah, really, really, and delighted to be working again. But all good. Whereabouts are you today? How, where are we interrupting you from? <clears throat> so I'm based in Cape Town. Um, this is very much my home, my home base, um, and just fortunate to have a wonderful coast to work on. So I've actually just been up doing some great white sharks for Shark Week, uh, about four hours uh, away from Cape Town. And then I'm going to be heading up to the Sardine Run, uh, which is off the wild coast, uh, next week for the whole of July. So really excited about that. I love how casually you throw that in there. Great white sharks. Just, <laughs> just you know, natively on your doorstep. Yeah. I, mean, I can't help but think that's got something to do with the career you might have found yourself in. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. Great Whites. Let's, let's start from where we're beginning. So what's that? What is that to do with? What project are we working on right now? Well, it's for, it's for, um, it's, it's for Shark Week. So it's, a, you know, their whole Air Jaws franchise um, uh, with Chris Fellows. Uh, it's been going for a long time. So massively popular in, in the States. And, and yeah, it gets, gets mentioned in fairly, it gets mentioned in a bunch of shows, doesn't it? Everyone's always going about Shark Week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's intriguing. It gets a lot of flack on some levels because it sort of portrays the sharks as kind of, wow, you know, big jaws. Of, yeah, but yeah, I mean, ocean, yeah. Yeah, but by the same token, you know, the guys do an incredible job to connect people with sharks and, and actually make sharks relevant to, to, to modern society and in a way gives them jobs, which, which is critical because if animals are invisible and they don't have any value, then they just get taken out. Um, so yeah, it was, it was actually a great privilege to work with them. It was just 10 days and just wonderful to see the numbers we had on the first day. We had, um, 19 individual sharks around the boat. Um, so yeah, it's really good. Well, that sounds like a lot, but give me some context here. What's the sort of, I mean, we'll start, we'll start gentle. We'll work into this because we've got a lot of ground to cover and some amazing projects that you've been involved with, but like, you know, let's start small, 19 sharks. What's you say that's, that's a good turnout. What's the typical turnout? Well, I mean, what I mean is, is that like that's 19 individual, like different animals that came in, you know, during the day around the boat that were identified because they're very characteristic. They've got different fins and you know, all sorts of things. They're easy to kind of differentiate. But um, look, I'm not, a, I'm not a great white shark expert by any means. I'm not 100% sure on top of all of the numbers. But what's been really interesting in South Africa is we've had this phenomenon where um, – you know, in False Bay and Hans Bay, which are the two predominant kind of shark areas, 
Now, suddenly the sharks have disappeared and it seems to be linked in with the orcas because the killer whales are coming in and killing great whites and eating their livers. That's, yeah, I've heard a little bit about it. I'm a little bit familiar. So <coughs> the new phenomenon, how long has this actually been happening for? Like, what, have you got any idea what's changed this behavior or what's, what's you know, implicated these things? It's, it's really tricky. There's a lot of speculation um, as to what, it appears to be just two orcas um, that kind of specialize in this behavior. But um, there's also some thinking that actually a lot more of them are doing it. They're not just doing great whites, they're doing other shark species as well. Right. And the, the driver of that could actually be because the fishery that the orcas normally rely on is, is being hammered by humans. So that's kind of driving the orcas inshore to feed on the sharks. So, you know, you, you speak to different scientists, they have different kind of takes on things. But all that we know for sure is that the sharks certainly seem to have disappeared from Hans Bay and and um, and False Bay for the time being. But well, you know, yeah, it's a shame certainly to hear those things are happening. But at the same time, it's nature, right? These things are going. Yeah, Josh. I mean, you know, I've been kind of getting more and more into um, you know just understanding the ocean. Um, beyond my sphere as a cinematographer. What's happening at the moment with climate change is this incredible mass migration because of changes in um, sea temperatures and things like that, you know, migration of species. So it's pretty it's pretty astounding what's going down at the moment. And um, yeah, very interesting to see where- That's kind of why I wanted to start with this part of the conversation and kind of just indulge a bit of that initially. Sure. Because ultimately, of course, your job and to give the audience a bit more context. <laughs> is specializing in underwater cinematography. And I mean, we'd be here until the end of time if we really got into all the different parts of it, but really interesting for me to hear initially, certainly how much of your interest has been from ocean first necessarily and how much of your, you know, you're not that even you're still learning because everyone's consistently and constantly learning about this part of the world that, you know, untaps in every, in every regards certainly from your perspective, to hear where the interest lies. Um, you know, was it cinematography first or was it the water and the ocean first? Let's get into it. No, absolutely the ocean first. So, um, you know, I grew up uh, close to the ocean as a child. We used to go and collect mussels. Um, my father was a spear fisherman. Um, so, you know, you just get that kind of imprinting. Um, we spent a lot of time as young kids growing up on the wild coast, which is the eastern Cape of South Africa, just beautiful, rugged coastline. Um, so I was always drawn to the ocean, you know, from that perspective, I was a lifeguard uh, when I was at school. And I think, you know, there's something about the ocean, which is from a psychological perspective as well, it's, it's very um, rejuvenating. You know, and, and I think a big part of that is that there's, you know, when you're in the water, you, you, there's no people, you know, you, there's no conversation, there's no... Interesting. So it's uh, <clears throat> yeah, the it's life of a cinematographer certainly suited you as well. Then, <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I went to see a performance coach, and, and and she pointed that out that you know your your neurotic style is probably is not triggered when you're in the water. So you find it, and I think that's true for a lot of people. A lot of people, maybe it's subconscious, but just that wonderful, you know, that, that zero gravity, um, the immersion, uh, and you come out, and it's almost like having you know been through meditation or something of that ilk because it kind of resets you in quite a profound way so yeah the ocean very much came first um but i nearly lost the ocean so very glad to be back you nearly lost the ocean well you know it's kind of 
I don't know when you were at school, but certainly for me, there were like three career path options. This is, I mean, I was at school in the 80s, so it was like... I was born in the 80s there, so give you some context. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so Josh, it was like lawyer, so attorney, doctor, accountant. Like that was it, man. So I think, I mean, To be fair, I think there was certainly some you know, yeah. driving factors towards exactly. those kind of, you know, you know, I say like academic career paths, you know, to coin, a, you know, a more a term that sort of adheres to those things. I definitely was pressured to do those things. You know, um, yeah. I knew from a very young age that I was interested in film and those sorts of things, but certainly it wasn't necessarily the things that I was pushed towards. It was like, go and get a real job or at least qualify in real subjects, you know, ridiculously so. So interesting to hear that sort of, like, that was certainly where you were pushed. How, you know, were, was film even an option? Was it even in a mindset of that educational platform at the time? No, I think it was, it, it was never an option. In fact, in my year, if you wanted to study art, you had to go down to like the, the, the D class or the F class. So like we had like, everything was like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Right. And then the smartest boys were in the A, you know, like academically smartest boys were in the A. So it went down. it's pretty, pretty hardcore. It's like, that's just the way it was. Um, so yeah, I think to do art, you had to go down to the, the, the E class or something like that. So I ended up doing like all the classics, Latin, you know, history, English. And Just those normal subjects like Latin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I came, you know, I had pretensions of becoming an attorney and in South Africa, you had to study law in your first year of university to right. get that degree. So anyway. Well, I, um, I think I can speak for everyone and say I'm very, very happy that you didn't go down that career path. <laughs> Look, it's, it's, it's good training. And I mean, the thing is, 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 you know, I really do value, you know, I ended up, um, it's kind of, yeah, so basically what happened was, is I was going to do law, I ended up getting heavily into spearfishing, which, so when I was like 19, 20, which with hindsight was like phenomenal for what I'm doing now, because it really gave me. Seems somewhat a contradiction in what you do now, but. <laughs> well, no, because. You know what I'm saying, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing, except I use a camera instead of a gun, so. <laughs> Again, I'm sure I speak for the wildlife now and happy, happy now that you've got a camera in your hands rather than a spear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but you know, the field craft, so like what you've got to realize with, with underwater is that when you're a cameraman underwater, it's very different to being a cameraman on land because you you can't sit in a Land Rover and, you know, shoot, shoot with a long lens and kind of, you know, chase after them. You have to be in the water. You've got to, you've got to bring them in close. You've actually got to build relationships with, with these animals. Um, and get to comprehend that. You know, I think that the main thing that when I watched the BBC behind the scenes, it was just kind of a new level of respect for what you guys do in so many regards. I'm sure you've had this conversation many times, but certainly that element of it, like not only are you dealing with, you know, incredible skills within the water and being comfortable in that environment, it's a completely different thing interacting with animals. And I can't even comprehend that. You know, where do you even begin with that side of things? I guess, you know, yeah, I think, I think, you know, again, you know, as I said, with, with that, and, you know, when I was spearfishing, the, the thing that I loved about that was, you know, the hunting of the fish was the one component, but it was the adventure, the, that whole, like, existential thing of being out there, you know, in basically a, a kind of a pristine, you know, environment, no man-made structures, exactly as it was, you know, 100,000 or 20,000 years ago, certainly not oh, yeah, less yeah. fish, but... You know, and you, you're engaging all of those kind of like primal um, kind of, uh, you know. Instincts and stuff, right? Instincts, capabilities that we have. So, you know, I, that's what, again, that's what I loved about, about, and it was all freediving. So like no scuba, you know, holding your breath. 
I mean, we'd do like six, seven-hour dives, you know, swim like six, seven Ks and then get back to the beach and then ching chong cha to see who runs back to go and fetch the car because the car <laughs> like six, So it was, it was just this glorious time of kind of adventure. Sounds like the perfect apprenticeship. For, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so that was just very definitive in terms of, of giving me those, we call it field craft, you know, that ability to anticipate where animals are going to be and, and, then, and then communicate. And, and in a way we do, I mean, I, I like to think you do kind of communicate with them using body language and there's a, I call it the dance and it's a way of getting animals comfortable around you and so that you can actually film them and move around them. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing and it just takes time you know, to develop. It's honestly an absolutely fascinating thing to hear because, as I said, I have a preconception about what that might involve. I really have zero understanding. Um, up until recently, I probably would have been quite fearful of even trying to attempt going underwater and doing those kind of things. I consider myself reasonably accomplished within my field using cameras, those sorts of things, but trying to use them underwater, again, different thing, but actually getting comfortable with the animals. You say that you call it the dance, but like... I feel like I need to deconstruct this fairly methodically to understand it better myself. But like you say over time, is that something that just becomes a more natural comfortability and simply by spending time in the water that it comes more naturally or? Yeah, I think, you know, the, if, again, if, if you go back to the free diving, you know, the, the, a big part of that is learning how to relax and be comfortable because then, you know, you, you can hold your breath longer. And also when you are, um, Hunting. How do you start with that? You know, how do you even start with that side of things? Because if I try and hold my breath for 30 seconds, I start panicking. It's like you could go on a course tomorrow and you'd hold your breath for like three and a half minutes in one day. I don't believe you. I don't believe you for sure. <laughs> like you've got enough oxygen. This is so funny. When you take a breath, right, you've yeah. got enough residual oxygen in your body to, to hold your breath, to sustain you before you black out for like three, three and a half, four minutes. It's like but a amount of time. but the, what causes the urge to breathe is not the lack of oxygen, it's the buildup of carbon dioxide. That's what triggers that urge to breathe. So, so you know, you've got a big reserve of oxygen, but your whole survival system is, it feels that CO2 getting to a little, like just, just this much, and it's saying, you've got to breathe, you've got to breathe, and you actually don't. So there's an instinct in me kicking, basically lying to me, is what you're saying. Correct, yeah. So there's this, there's this thing, Tim Noakes, who's a South African um, kind of physiological guru and whatever, he talks about the governor theory, which is this survival, you know, the reason we've survived as individuals and our parents and whatever is that there's, a, there's quite a radical degree of conservancy. Because if you, if you went hunting and you, you, you exerted all your energy to go and kill the animal, you wouldn't be able to get home. And you wouldn't so, survive, right? Yeah. Exactly. So we all have this incredible um, kind of like, like we, we limit ourselves. And I think there's a survival instinct, yeah. Yeah, there's a guy, Ross, Ross Edgley, British guy. You, you heard of him? I'm going to look him up immediately, but I haven't heard of him. Yeah. I can't say how. Yeah. You cannot believe right. this guy. He, he, like, he swam around Britain. Ah, okay. I feel like I have heard of him now. This is really yeah. terrible with names. That's the bad thing. I'm terrible with names. I, I, I am familiar with this guy. Yeah, he's like, he, he runs marathons like carrying a tree, like a big tree on his shoulder. I mean, and I think, you There's know. a couple of these superhumans on Earth, isn't there? Like this guy, Wim Hof, who can do some crazy stuff as well, right? Well, exactly. So Wim, I actually, you know, follow um, and 
Yeah, again, another insight from Vim, which I found astounding, was that when you do the breathing and when you, specifically when you immerse yourself in cold water, which the ocean tends, you know, can, obviously can be warm, can be cold, but it actually shunts the blood from your, your hippocampus to kind of back into your limbic, you know, your sort of more prehensile limbic systems, which gives you the same benefit as like an hour of meditation. Wow. Just like that with the shunt. So, and that, and that kind of makes sense to me. You know, like when you can't sleep and, you know, it's just like we, we live in our... We just live in a, in a. I can relate. I can absolutely relate. If I get ex- enthusiastic about any kind of idea or anything, I'm up yeah. and I'm there. And I've got to write something down. Or I've got to do something about it. Most of them are okay, but for, on a day-to-day basis, for sure, I completely relate. Yeah. So you know the deep breathing, and then the, obviously the cold water showers and things like that. Just get up, have a cold water shower, do the breathing, and then you go back. To I subscribe sleep. to the cold water showers. I do that much, but I don't think yeah. the water's cold enough at the moment. The ambient temperature is too warm. But we yeah. did jump in the ocean last week and kind of do my best to get out into the water whenever I can. I can't profess to say I'm any kind of an expert or any means, but I do certainly enjoy the cold water. <laughs> I think I've got some hot blood in me somewhere. It's like just keeping me surviving in sort of situations. But, mate, it's really fascinating to hear about just how how much you've thought about that side of things as well. I mean, it's, it seems perfectly natural, but, I mean, in my experience, a lot of people, not necessarily within the level that you're operating at, um, but certainly my experience is that a lot of people don't necessarily regard that information. They kind of take it for granted, especially those people that are perhaps born by the water and live by the water. And then certainly just kind of that's their way of life. They don't necessarily think about the psychological side of things or even like you said about maybe developing your own assets. And I guess that's what you are in that regard, isn't it? If you're looking at it as a profession, you know, all these things have been building your arsenal of assets to get you to a position where you just happen to be incredibly good um, or incredibly equipped and prepared for doing your job to the level that you're doing it. And I guess learning cinematography is secondary, I guess, right? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, it's, I remember that that Steve Jobs um, discussion where talk he gave, I think, at Yale or whatever. He talks about, like, follow the things you're really passionate about. They might all seem kind of, like, fundamentally disconnected, but then they kind of all come together in this, like, virtuous circle. And certainly that's been my case where you know I was passionate about athletics and, and, and the, the physicality of diving and things like that really big into ideas um, concepts um, and and then you know yeah it's kind of the cinematography in a way like handles all of those things as well it's all about ideas it's about communication it's about storytelling um, and then there's the physicality of the filming and the diving and things like that so and also I, I was um, when I left uh, university, I actually got into digital back in 1995. Yeah. Uh, uh, you won't remember, but there were products like Macromedia Director, Authorware, which were for CD-ROM kind of things. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that was that was really cool. So, so that's been super useful for me. I became a multimedia instructor, got into digital, and, and okay. basically for ten years in corporate. So I was I was got involved in financial services, built online trading platforms. And that was really kind of like 10 years of corporate. Um, and I presume you were in there around the water at the same time though, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was. But I kind of, that's what I was saying, like I kind of lost the ocean because, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, when I was spearfishing, you just can't make a career out of that. So I got kind of sucked into the corporate. And like anything. You've got to make money somewhere. You've got to keep the bills paid and the bread on the table, right? Exactly. And, you know, you, competitive and, and, and really, so I really kind of got stuck into that. Um, and, 
did that really hard. Where, where did you cut it off when you were like, enough's enough, I'm done with this corporate world? What was the what was the turning point? Well, I mean, it, it was kind of kind of funny because I I was actually doing an executive MBA at the UCT Graduate School of Business, and I kind of I just suddenly it was a really great course. And what it you know what I realized is that an executive like an MBA trains you to manage complexity. Okay, that's number one thing because I mean modern business is complex. The second thing is what do you actually do as an executive? Like, what do you actually do? Like, can you answer that question? What does a CEO do? Well, essentially, uh, yeah, you're not, what was I going to say, dictating. You're not dictating. I was looking for the word that, uh, yeah, you're, you're telling other people and managing other people, right? And for a want, want better, want of a better idea, but, or trying to at least, I guess, managing yeah. different complex tasks for those people or like diverting that attention. There's a word for it and I can't think what it is. Yeah, look, I think it's an incredible, like, I admire such respect for people who do it. But mm. from, a, from like a one lens, you, basically what you're doing is you're sitting in a box and you're managing conversations. You're like, that's essentially what you do. You're working through people. So you're not getting out. You're not kind of, you know, I mean, that is ultimately what an executive does. That's what a manager is what you're trained to do. And I just yeah. kind of thought, I just had this aha moment. I was like, like, I want to do more than this. You know, I, I just... It's not that I didn't enjoy corporate, like I really felt it was stimulating and challenging, but... But a different kind of challenge and one that you were promoting yourself to one that you didn't enjoy, right? Yeah. So, and you know, you lose your passion for it and then hard to sustain. You know, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, it's it's difficult to operate on a world-class level and sustain that that interest if you're not... Really That's interesting. Like the intellectual challenge that you're, you're talking about sounds incredibly relatable. You know, it's a different kind of challenge, I guess but one that makes sense with application. If you cease to have the application, then there's no point doing it, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was it. I kind of, I resigned. Um, <clears throat> didn't really know what I wanted to do, but knew what I didn't want to do. Um, <laughs> so and, often the case, so often the case. Yeah, and that's, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's not a bad place to start. Like, you know, you're not going to do You know what this. you don't want to do. I'm not going back there for sure. That's enough motivation to keep going, right? Exactly. And then, you know, like, like, like anything, Josh, I mean, it's, it's always about networks and connections, isn't it? And I, I, um, I was for, through my spearfishing. Um, I got a job working as an assistant cameraman on a BBC shoot on the Sardine Run back in 2007. And, and, and boom, you know, suddenly you... It was that alongside. I happened to have done a bit of research here and found out who you might have been working alongside, someone quite special, no? Yeah, super special and an incredible character and still a, a very great friend. Um, Didier Noiro, who was, um, so he was Jacques Stowe's cameraman for you know, a long period of time. I so, love that, like, your life has gone, I'm going to commit real hard to this corporate world. I'm going to decide that I don't like that anymore. And the first, term, you know, the first stone you uncover just happens to be, I, I can't think of a better person for you to have worked with in terms of what you do now. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's like, you know, you, when you go through those, and I'm sure people relate, when you go through that kind of career change, it's, it's pretty like soul destroying. You, you, you know, you leave a career behind, you suddenly not earning any money, you have a lot of self-doubt, you like determined to prove yourself and, and sort of actually don't have a clue what you're going to do. So um, I remember that, that thing of like, you know, my worst question if I went out was like people saying to me, so what do you do? It's like... <laughs> Don't ask me that question. It's like, 
But yeah, did you, honestly, I think we all go through that. It's just good to know yeah. that you do too. Certainly from my perspective, to hear, yeah. hear that someone that has, you know, will go into the work that you've done, but to know that a person like yourself definitely has experienced that conversation or that kind of social, like, I don't want to talk about this. So I'm going to avoid these conversations. Yeah. Like what, yeah. why is there stigma attached to that? It's foolish, isn't it? It's like you're doing, you know what? The best thing you did was, throw in the towel at the previous place because you knew what you didn't want to do and then you found something you did want to do and you were doing that wherever it was you know I'm trying to explain that obviously it's not something that's typically well understood but great to no, it's definitely that culture of never like you know that being tough and stiff up a lip and all that kind of thing which you know we, we grew up in a South African culture which was quite influenced by Brit, you know, British culture I was about to say we subscribe to the same stuff here it's ridiculous really. oh, oh. So, uh, so Didier was you know he was amazing and and yeah, I remember he, it was a very definitive moment where I took a photograph and he doesn't praise easily. Like, he, in fact, it's like he doesn't. He's one of those guys. It's going to make you work for it. Exactly. And I remember I, like, I shot this image and he, he looked at it and he was like, he said to me, uh, Monsieur, you do not miss. And really what he was getting at is, is, is he wasn't really talking so much about the, you know, the aesthetics, but it was more about the fact that I had an ability to get the action and, and not miss the action, which is obviously critical because so many of our filming opportunities, Josh, are so are so brief. You know, on a bait ball, it might only last like six or seven minutes, and you've got to get all the coverage and you've got to be, you know, you've got to be really kind of on it. So that that really planted the seed of. I think that's putting that lightly. <laughs> you guys, honestly, you know, I don't want to kiss your ass too much, but the, the amount of dedication you guys have, I think is honestly on a level unto its own in the industry. I can't even imagine going through the amount of time that you guys are committing to simply, as you said, get seven or eight minutes worth of something over what we're talking weeks, months commitment to maybe one sequence. Maybe yeah. I don't know. You know, you tell me. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, a good example is the Azores. On, on our planet, um, I was sent to the Azores to shoot a um, bait ball event. So it would be, you know, a common dolphin feeding on anchovies with shearwaters coming down. And, and I kind of knew the producer, like, I think he was told by the executive producer to send me. And uh, I, I think he had zero confidence. He's a great producer, by the way. But he, he just, he knew it was a long shot. And well, the event was a long shot, not you. <laughs> well, no, no, like he knew that the whole thing was a long shot. Yeah, like, yeah. Was getting something. And yeah, it was tough. You know, we were there in summer. It was light at like five o'clock, got dark at nine. So, I mean, you know, it's incredibly long days. So we were getting up before sunrise. We were doing five hours, coming back, having a quick feed and sleep and then going back out again for another five hours. Because bait balls tend to be more prolific, sort of, you know, early and late. Right. Yeah, it was so we did 25 days straight. We had incredible weather, 10 hours a day in a rib, you know, like an open rib, no cover, doing sometimes up to uh, about 100, 100 nautical miles a day in this boat, like just charging around looking for these, for these, these events. That must be exhausting. Yeah, it is. And there's a short chop in the Azores. So like the boat's banging and it's like you're trying to sleep on the way out. Do you get used to it or does it just, is it just a continual barrage of punishment? No, you do. You do get used to it. And I mean, a lot of it is, is pleasurable. You're out in the ocean. I mean, sometimes I can see it. that. Yeah. No, I think you could get into it. But um, <laughs> the bottom line is, you know, so 250 hours at sea and, and literally I was on a ball. All the material that I shot came from a ball that lasted like nine minutes. 
but Josh, you know, to flip it around, the 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 other thing is is is, I mean, I admire what you guys do topside, like because you guys just don't stop. You know, when oh, guys are, that up. You can leave that. that seriously, like I don't. <laughs> I actually, our job is is actually ninety five percent meditation. You know, and like five percent engagement. I mean, it depends because sometimes if you're doing a benthic shoot where you're filming small critters and you're on tripods and that, you know, it's a lot more. You can be doing three six hours a day on rebreathers and. It, which is wonderful, but so the pressure to get that. I mean, of course, you mentioned meditation. Surely that has got to be something to do with dealing with the pressure of simply getting that event. I mean, we're talking. You've got to have a hit rate of hundred percent, no? No, not really. I mean, I'd say our, our hit rate is like. I mean, we definitely fail. It shoots you go on, and, and the event just doesn't happen. Right. And the event doesn't happen. And I mean, if you if you you've got a pretty understanding executive producer as well in that light. <laughs> The guys that make it, they know. I mean, they know that, you know, and that's why as a producer, you know, if you've got 10 stories you've got to cover, they, they're going to probably try and do maybe 12 and budget for that and they're going to have yeah. some that they know are dead certs and then some that are high risk. So it's kind of like trying to work out because it's not like a feature where, you know, you control everything. It's like Yeah, you do your best to control as many variables as possible. Yeah. And I guess that's definitely a line of questioning as well, like, how where does i mean let's start with where does you know the ideas come from is that something that you're involved with on the creative processes or is that kind of fed from you from the team creative team i mean in, in theory it's it's not the classic production model would be that let's just say our planet blue planet 2 you've got a four-year production generally a four-year production cycle wow first year, first year would be um getting the production team, the producer, um, you know, and the researchers involved. So they all spend pretty much a year trying to find the stories. Okay? So if you're doing a one-hour episode, you need at least 10 stories in a classic natural feature doc. And how many so, episodes are we in Blue Planet? Six. Six. So, you know, you're looking for six times 10. That's 60 ideally new stories. Yeah, yeah, that's not a small amount. Pretty, pretty difficult. Or often you'll you'll try and film a new story either with new technology or try and find like a story beat that gives it a twist or something. Um, yeah, it kind of gets me onto it a bit earlier, but one of the major things, I mean, you're getting onto it as we speak, was, you know, where does it go? You guys have proven and obviously yeah. you've been, you know, recognized at BAFTA level of yeah. what you guys are achieving. Where does it go here, from here? You know, where does it go from here? You know, when you've got 60 stories in a previous season, like you're working on the next next show right now, right? Blue Planet 3. Like, how do you even innovate? Well, it's tough. And I think I think um I think that you know there's 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 two ways really. I mean, well, probably you know more, but just for the sake of this, maybe two or three that I can point out. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, we are creating entertainment. And you know that whole story about the fact that there's only really two or three stories that are ever told. The way narrative works, the narrative chestnut. So I think, you know, increasingly we can't get away with just like, wow, here's an orca, here's a clever, oh, that's amazing. You know, we, we've really got to engage with narrative, classic kind of narrative storytelling um, and then using all the cinematography tools you have to engage the, the viewer and get them to, you know, emotionally respond to that specific story. So in a way, like, you know, and stylistically, this is kind of where natural history filmmaking is going. You're looking at like 10 little Pixar movies. Interesting way of looking at it. Interesting way of looking at it. I, 
I think there's, there's that, you, you know, your specific involvement does fascinate me specifically because credit to the cinematography here, certainly, but how are you assessing that? How are you, you know, are you assessing that? I mean, of course you must be, but is it on a case by case basis or are you thinking about new ways to shoot something or a different way of putting something together? Is that your decision? Is that you and the director on the show? How do these things even come to be? Well, I think it, it kind of varies depending on the, you know, the, the executive producer and then obviously the showrunner. So like increasingly like with Netflix, they call it a showrunner. That's the sort yeah. of producer director. And in our industry, the producer and director are essentially the same person. Um, so I think it, it depends to a degree on their approach and their culture. I think historically um, a lot of the, the producers were, they had scientific backgrounds okay. and were very unconscious to a degree about what they were doing. They were kind of like they'd learnt the craft of natural history filmmaking from their peers and then they, you know, they just replicated that and, and became incredibly good at it. Um, I think increasingly we're seeing a new breed of natural history producer coming through. Yeah, about it. Because look at the, you know, look at the, yeah. how things have moved on in the last, even the last couple of years. Yeah. It's had an incredible explosion, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, that, you know, that definitely more nuanced in, 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 in classic cinematography, filmmaking. Um, and that's where, so to answer your question from earlier, um, I do sometimes get involved. If I find a story, I'll take it to a producer I like and, you know, actually get, you know, some, some new behaviour or something, you know, and I'll take that to them. So the, the octopus sequence that we shot for Blue Planet 2, um, Craig Foster, a friend of mine, actually found that story uh, he discovered that and then he brought it to me and then we took that to the production. Um, so that's that does happen. But generally, it's the production that comes to you with the stories and assigns you as a cameraman or camera operator to go and shoot that specific story. I think that's phenomenal about it all, really. It's just, like, you know, learning about some of these things that's, as you said, your you know, colleague of yours or friend of yours has observed this behaviour and in some instances, you know, well-documented that, you in television worlds are overtaking natural history and science in some way. Go like, oh, we're, we're discovering things that have previously been undocumented and forcing science to reevaluate, you know, animal behaviour. That's incredible. Yeah, and I think you know the, the I feel for scientists because they they are, I mean, their their religion. I call it a religion, like the scientific mindset, because it is it's a way of seeing, it's a way of seeing the world in a way. But it's, it's very powerful on many, many levels. It creates incredible ef efficacy in terms of our ability to, you know, control things or whatever. But it's fundamentally disempowering for scientists because unless they can, unless they can say something with like 95%... You've got to prove it, right? That's, that's the crux of it, right? Can't say it. So they can know in their being that like climate change is happening, but they can't stand up and actually you know, lead and, and, and uh, so it's a kind of a crazy predicament that we're in, but that must be debilitating for you guys being on the front line of that though. Like seeing these changes happening with your own eyes, obviously amazing that you've got the vehicle to put that out there. Asabur himself at the, you know, in the last series talking very specifically about climate change and yeah. passionately as well, which makes a very different, you know, it's a very different absorption. It connects with you in a different way and in testament to the series and how it's put together, certainly. But, that, you know, those messages are really starting to get through in a different way now because you guys, like yourselves, are putting yourselves out there and we're physically witnessing the events and the results and effects of these things. 
I mean, you know, it must be incredible to have that on your doorstep. But yeah, I think I think it's, you know, it's, it's 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 also a bit of a paradox because you know we get sent. You know, you mentioned about us seeing the changes and the, and the devastation. I mean, paradoxically, you know, we get sent to the last Edens because that's what we are filming is the kind of the last Edens and. You know, we're not really going to film longliners and, and that kind of thing. So I know there's been a lot of challenge um, to the natural history uh, industry for, for not dealing with those sort of like those tougher issues, those more graphic issues. And I think there's definitely a, a change in the industry now where they are tackling those things. But it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Because if you make those programs and, and the audience just absolutely don't want to watch them. Yeah. It seems plummet. Unfortunately, everything needs to be packaged in a way. I mean, a testament again to the show that it's, for me, the way I've seen it, I've had, you know, conversations with people about these kind of programs I never would have before. People are excited about what they've seen. And I guess that is a vehicle for that change then because you can sort of gradually see things in in a way that is digestible to people, right? I think that's it. And I mean, we've had a lot of discussions editorially around, you know, how we can evolve the genre and what we can do. But it's, it's exactly like that. I mean, you, you want to engage people. And I think that these films play an incredible role in building that love and respect for the animals and the oceans. And also what I'm, what I'm really enjoying is the fact that increasingly we are being able to portray animals as characters and as individuals and as having different characters. Just yeah, like we... bonifies them, makes them, yeah, it brings the audience in on that. And it's yeah. so funny, isn't it? It's like character, develop, character development 101. It's storytelling in its purest form. And it's that narrative side of things. But at the same time, what does it do? It really engages you when you're watching it. I mean, again, it's, how, is it like, how is it putting those sequences together in terms of coverage when you're actually filming them? Do you feel that connection physically as well? Or? No, you do. I mean, you know, obviously you, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you like, it's, it's, you know what it's like when you, you know, you've got a camera and you become very kind of, um, what's the word, instrumental because, you, you know, you've got a specific goal that you need to do. But, um, and, the, and the coverage is, a, is, is very challenging because, it, again, it depends on what you're shooting. But clearly, you know, very basic approach, you know, crack your master wide, go straight in to get some tights, get some cutaways, um, and then try and repeat that cycle because you just don't know how long it's going to last. Um, but it's... it's um, yeah, it's 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 very very challenging because you know you 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 it it depends like if it's a bait ball and it's happening really fast then you can kind of you know you can kind of break you just kind of do your best you know you get the master wires you go for some tights you kind of move but I love that it's just do your best and we're talking about some of well the best cinematography underwater certainly in history I just like I just do your best you know I don't know if you have this Josh but I like I'll come out of the water after an intense event I can't watch my rushes like I can't watch them really. <laughs> No, because I, I what I'm say, you're like shit. If I didn't get it, or yes, what? I should have done that, and I should have done that. You know, and it's kind of like ah, it's so intense, man. And I and I oh, kind man. of I have to wait like three months, and I go back, and I'm like, okay, actually, that's I can live with that. That's cool. That's actually cool. It's it's better than I remember. You know what I mean? It's like oh no, way. it's um, but it's it's you know we do we do on some sequences. I mean, some sequences increasingly are completely storyboarded. So, right. um, yeah, there's a whole breakdown of all the shots we need, the different shot sizes, um, and, you know, and you have to be very conscious of that because obviously if you want to villainize something, you, you know, you want to be underneath it, you want to give it a slight bit yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you, you know... Very traditional of, approach, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So all of this stuff's kind of going and you, and you sort of, 
<laughs> you're trying to remember everything, trying to make sure that you're looking at your gauge, you don't run out of air. It's, I, I mean, I love it. By me is like you've got a shot list to follow. You've got all this, oh, and yeah, you're underwater and you're actually, you know, at risk. You know, we're not just talking about at risk in terms of like, obviously oxygen, that's one thing. But I've seen some of the stuff you've worked on, mate. And it's like, see, you wouldn't put me in there. I'll tell you that. I saw one of the shots on your Instagram about this Nile crocodile. And it made me scared just looking at the picture. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually spoke to someone about that. I don't think I'm going to do those anymore. Decided like really? I've done four seasons up there in the Delta and uh, those crocs are, they're pretty gnarly, you know. And, and I think it's, it's, it's just, I, th- I think the crocodiles are fine, but it's, it's just that it's kind of a bit like Russian roulette. You know, at some stage you're going to swim into a hippo or something's going to pop out or, um, you know, so, uh, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, My understanding of this is like, you know, you are really putting yourselves in harm's way. This is not a joke. This is not like, no, oh, we're safe. There's a, there's a big cage behind this. Like you really are in there doing this. How do you deal with that? I mean, what? It's, it's, I just, it's, it's, it's what I enjoy doing. I mean, it's like, it's intrinsic to, you know, the, I love the intensity of, of it. And, um, you know, it's, there is a degree of addiction in that. I mean, you know, we all have addictions, various types of addictions. And, you know, this for me is, is a kind of addiction where you, you, in this situation that is, is, I mean, when I say life-threatening, no cameraman has ever died from the animal that they're filming, apart from Steve Irwin. And, and I mean, apparently what Steve did, I kind of heard the backstory, it might be anecdotal or incorrect, but, you know, Stingray is predated on by tiger sharks. So it has this defensive mechanism when it swims, if it senses a shadow behind it, 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 it just automatically lashes up with its tail, which has got a big barb. And apparently what Steve Irwin did was he approached this ray from behind without showing himself. So right. the ray didn't know he was there, you know, Ray sensed the shadow and it flicked out and just unfortunately pierced his heart with its with its um tragically unfortunate. I couldn't believe it when I heard it to be fair, obviously with yeah. with everything that he'd done before that point. But yeah, it's interesting to see that that's the only casualty. But yeah, no one's I mean what kills cameramen, wildlife cameramen, uh, can you have any idea what kills them? Number one thing. Oh man, I, it's gonna be something really dumb, isn't it? Like dehydration or something. Go on, what is it? Light aircraft. What? No. Helicopters, helicopters, light aircraft, hot air balloons, like that's, that's, I mean, most of the guys die. And the only other thing is rebreathers, which can get, you know, rebreather can be pretty tricky because there's no warning. Well, I've, you know, I've, I've recently learned about these, but please indulge me. Rebreathers, obviously it's a breathing apparatus to assist mm-hmm. in you guys being underwater, but also making as minimal disruption as possible. Correct. So what's the what's the thing? Uh, so the they were kind of developed in the Second World War. I mean, they were they go back back before then, but in the Second World War, they developed them for the frogmen, so they could kind of sneak into harbors um, and not have the bubbles. Yeah. Um, so essentially, it's an air extender. When you on scuba, and you know, let's say you're breathing air, you've got 21% oxygen, rest nitrogen. So when you take a breath, you only metabolize four, uh, 25% of that available oxygen. The rest you breathe out into the water. So it's a very wasteful form of underwater breathing. What a rebreather does is obviously you, re-breathe, you recycle the air, so you keep all the oxygen, 
And then what happens is the, um, you've got scrubber on the back, which takes out the carbon dioxide, and you've got a computer that, that monitors the amount of the partial pressure of oxygen and just injects minute amounts of oxygen as you metabolize it. So wow. on a breather, yeah, you've got about, I mean, in warm water, and if you're not moving too much, you probably do like six hours, six, seven hours. What? In shallowish water. It's so interesting because, you know, again, a testament to just how comfortable you must be in the water to be under for that. Do you, does your brain retune itself at that point in time? You're like, I'm just on land now. Do you kind of get that used to it? Does that ever happen? No, it's totally second nature. I mean, you're totally dialed in, you're totally, you know, it's, it, it's funny because I, re- I remember I went, I spent a year in Texas uh, on a track scholarship when I was, when I was younger and um, I'd, I'd started spearfishing before and, and then I went to Texas for a year and I honestly thought that I wouldn't remember how to, you know, dive and I came back and no way. straight in. It's, it's like, it's just second, it's so second nature. You know, you, you, you just, you, once you've done it so many times, you just don't forget, you know. It's amazing. Such an alien world to me. So you have to forgive my fascination. But yeah, I've never dived or anything. I've done snorkel stuff, but you know, I'm comparatively very uncomfortable in the water to yourself. Having, I'm probably sure it's like some repressed memory from a child nearly drowning in the pool or something like that. It's like gone like water's scary, but only recently I've been actually been more comfortable in the water. And you know, I, in all honesty, if I'm, programs like the ones you guys make are definitely a newfound fascination with that. You know, it's probably like had mental scarring from crap movies like Jaws, which is brilliant in its own right, but at the same time in terms of a representation of uh, <laughs> the species of shark that we were talking about earlier, it's not exactly the, the right kind of situation you want to be communicating in. <laughs> how have things been affected with you guys in the moment? Anyways, how has work? Like, you know, you were talking about the new show and things, you are talking about the new stuff coming up, but I mean, I don't know about the you, but certainly the rest of us have been affected by a lot of this uh, global situation going on no i mean it's massive you know so i actually went through a period of like thinking well i might have to you know like reinvent myself again because literally you know i think international travel is going to be fundamentally constrained um for a period of time i mean i don't know what's going to happen to airline prices um ignorantly i was like oh you work in the water you'll be okay but obviously as you said straight away airline travel is the fundamental thing Uh, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, most of my work is is international. Um, you know, I do, I, I try and limit my away time to 150 days of the year because of my family. And I, I just, that's kind of like the magic number that you, you don't want to be too much over that. Um, so, but, you know, I have years where literally everything is, is international. So I'm, you know, yeah. Costa Rica. So fortunately this year, I had a number of shoots scheduled well, I had, I had two schedules for South Africa. I managed to pitch one, which we got for the beginning of the year, which is very, you know. So I've actually been very, very lucky that you'll be able to work locally. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, but we, we did get shut down for quite a while because of level four lockdown and things like that. Right. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's also been, you know, I got very involved in my stock. You know, I've started to develop stock library. So, you know, I got stuck into that and that helped quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, my big takeout is... Get yourself you know, I mean, on a four-year production schedule, that must have some serious ramifications, no? Like, we're dealing with wildlife. We're, not, we're dealing with nature. We're not dealing with, like, I can't call an actor up and be like, you know, we're just on a hiatus for a minute. Well, I think so. And, I mean, also what we're anticipating in, in 2020, 2021 is this massive pileup because, you know, a lot of productions have kind of basically been put on hold. Yeah, of course. So, you know, even if, if, their, if their TX dates get pushed out, 
there's still going to be this kind of like Hillary step of, of productions trying to like. <laughs> <laughs> so, Interesting reference there. Yeah, so it, it could get, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see, um, you know, how it all goes. But I'm just personally very grateful that, you know, South Africa's got a wonderful coastline. We've been able to operate and, you know, so far so good. I'm glad to hear that it's working out for you at least. I've unfortunately not been able to get out to South Africa, but it's very much on my to-do list. I've got a few friends from out there and I've just been screaming about it and very lovely place to visit. So I'm very jealous in that regards. But on the other side of things, you mentioned the Hillary step. Um, have you done much out of the water or is it all specialised then? No, so when I was when I was assisting, you know, I started, I told you about Didier and I was yeah. kind of, made that film with him and, you know, I only had, I was only really getting work on one, through one producer in Bristol. So, you know, I learned how to hustle. So I was, in I was Bristol. yeah, so I was based in Cape Town. I was just only getting work through a producer called Hugh Pearson, which is the guy that with so like on the africa series i was the assistant you know for all the underwater stuff but i mean we're talking like maybe two gigs a year like two three weeks a year mm. so I, I couldn't afford a you know any underwater video equipment so uh, i remember i bought a d200 nikon d200 um and then a d700 and a d800 and basically i worked as a stills photographer say, so you start stills world yeah because that's you know even though i kind of wanted a film you know, and also remember that on these shoots as an assistant, you can shoot stills. So, like, you know, you're just shooting thousands of stills. You're shooting behind the scenes. You're shooting um, basically just stills. So it was a great way to train your eye. Um, and then to make money outside of that, I, I was doing, you know, travel lodges. I was doing whatever it took. I mean, even did events for a while. I never did weddings. But... Uh, <laughs> Amazing. I love that you clarified that. Never did weddings. I would take that to my grave. I never did weddings. <laughs> um, but, you know, you learn and, and it's, it's, it's that process of training your eye. Um, you know, I really enjoy, I enjoy the sort of, the, you know, I enjoy reading books on aesthetics and, uh, you know, just history of art, painting, just trying to really train. Because, I mean, that's ultimately your, your, your ultimate weapon is the way you see the world, right? Not, not the camera. I try and encourage as many people to understand this as possible. Your your greatest asset is your perspective, not someone else's, not copying someone else's, how you see the world, train that. And I've always, always did by that. It's interesting though, it's, you know, from your perspective, uh, it sounds like you were very self-motivated in the training element of it, in the technical side of it. Was that, did any of that come from Didier as well? Were you able to sort of like, or was that all very much craft-based? Was the technical photography side of it left to you? I think it was it was it was left to me. It's interesting because my grandfather was a very sort of passionate um, amateur photographer. Um, I never really clocked, fun enough. Yeah, I never really clocked it then. But um, I actually bought a, a Sony Handycam like in two thousand and three um, when I was in corporate, and I, I did made a lot of home videos and things. And it was never something that I really thought was significant because it was just something that I did. But it was clearly in me to that whole kind of acquisition type thing. And, and, and it, it, it also, I think, you know, the nice thing about a camera is that, you know, like can get quite boring, like in, in certain like situations. So like it's your excuse to like be doing stuff, you know, <laughs> you don't have to have conversations and you can kind of like be constructive and, you, and it, 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 cameras are amazing. They give you a license to kind of like operate, you know, like to sort of do stuff. Um, so the technical side of things, I mean, let's face it, in my opinion, 
it's it's really not that that complex. You know, you don't need to, you know, understand like Ansel Adams' whole theory of exposure down to, you know, a great detail. I mean, I think increasingly because of WYSIWYG, you know, what you see is what you get. If the image you're seeing is looking good um, and your exposure is pretty good and, you know, I mean, generally with a red anyway, I mean, you can pull out so much detail. It's, it's actually, say underwater as well. There's probably not too many choices about exposure either. You kind of got a sensor that's working for you or you haven't, right? Well, the thing is, yeah, and you'll see, you know, you don't have all that, like, that, you know, like you take Roger Deakins, for example, I mean, the incredible extent he goes to, there's lighting. I mean, you don't really have that. You, 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 you know, you can't control those things. We don't use underwater lights, like period. Well, so, yeah, just disturb things, wouldn't you? you couldn't, right? Yeah, and also it just, it kind of makes things look, it just makes them look artificial. It's just not something that, that you, you know, obviously if it's dark, then you, you have to. But so, yeah, I think the technical side of things is, is actually very easy to, to get on top of, you know, you apply yourself, you, you know, and I'm always reading, I'm always reading up on the stuff and quite fascinated by it, but you know, it's not, I, I remember this sort of um, story of a, a fighter pilot who someone asked him like, is the plane hard to fly? And he was like, no, the plane's easy to fly. The hard thing to do is to shoot down the other guy. So that's why, the, you know, if, if you were flying a fighter plane, it was hard to fly. It's, you know what I mean? I think so, honestly, I do think it's very, very important to address this side of it because it's all too easy to get drawn into kind of a misleading conversation of like what the important element is. It's like what can be taught versus what has to be either natural or just committed to in a kind of different way. And that's you know certainly what I'm learning in your perspective. And this is what I love about the stories and these kind of conversations generally. And this is part and parcel of why we're doing this is yeah. to try and I just help people understand that. It's like they're just different applications and, you know, aptitude is definitely one of them. But at a certain point in time, you have to commit to something. But there's something as simple as that, you know, the technical side of that specific application actually isn't the most complicated part. That can be learned if you commit to it. But, you know, we're talking to someone that's, you know, know, I'm sure hopefully don't mind me bringing up the BAFTA thing. It's like such a big deal. And absolutely deserve but it's just like crazy to me to see that level of cinematography and to have that conversation it's like right cool the you know the technical element of it isn't necessarily the most important part everything else that obviously you've essentially in an uh, indirect way dedicated your life to to discover that you've got this kind of skill set it's a phenomenal thing yeah it's, it's it, it is and it's like it's it's um yeah i mean i, I certainly encourage people to to, but I think similar to what you're saying, you know, like you do need to understand, um, you know, especially things like exposure, exposed to the right, you know, but I mean, you don't need to go into like the absolute nitty gritty of it to, to create beautiful imagery. You absolutely don't. The critical thing, as I said, is, is the way that you see the world. Once you, once you crack that, and some people are born with it, and it's absolutely innate, um, and I think there's a lot of people that can shoot, you know, beautiful imagery, and they just do it instinctively. Um, to, to do something, you know, I mean, the hardest thing, let's face it, as a, as a photographer is to shoot something that we see every day and get people to see it in a different way. Like, 100% agree. 100% agree. If you, if you told me to walk outside right now, it'd take me days to get you a good shot. But you send me somewhere interesting, like minutes, I'm done. Like, cool. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, you know, really definitive um, this is African photographer Peter Hugo. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He shot the hyenas and the, I mean, and his ability to to just shoot very, you know, portraits, you know, it, 
I mean, I'm familiar with the subjects that he shoots and I, I've walked past them many times. And, and I mean, I always think of that because, you know, I look at his photography and then I see that thing in a completely different way. So, you know, I think when you reach that level where you are not just, um, you know, producing good imagery, award-winning imagery, but when you're starting to kind of, you know, add to the craft, that is, even if you just do one small little thing, that's a massive achievement. And um, I mean, you know, I haven't even got close to that. So that's, that's an ambition for me is to try and, you know, find a way to contribute to the craft of underwater cinematography in a way that, you know what I mean, like raises that bar just to like... Honestly, a little... I'm 100% with you. I completely understand what you're talking about because the, people would be forgiven for thinking that you're at this level and there's nowhere else to go with it. And the reality is I know where your spectrum is. Without even talking to you today, I knew that your spectrum would be like, oh, I'm here. But there's all this. There's like a... The mountain to climb is insurmountable. It will, you know, consume my every breath probably. You know, I'm probably not wrong in saying so because there is so much more to take from it and get from it. And it's like, yeah, man, it just it honestly blows my mind the amount of, you know, spectrum within it. But, you know, please indulge. What are your ambitions? How, you know, what's, you know, is it technological stuff you're thinking about next? What's like, what's the next kind of things you guys are thinking about? I think, I mean, not really. The technology for me is always secondary in terms of just giving us a means to um, create an emotional connection. Because, I mean, ultimately, you know, we are storytelling. So, like, we are telling stories and exactly like you would be in a, you know, a big feature. You know, all of us are cinematographers. I mean, that's the, fundamental, that's the fundamental challenge. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by new technology purely in terms of a way that it could, you know, create a more of a visceral response in, in audience. Um, and I'm also a big believer in, like, being on the cutting edge, not the bleeding edge. Like, I don't want to go into the field with, like, this kind of unproven technology that's hobbled together and then you, you spend more time trying to fix the thing than you are actually trying to film the animal. Um, so I'm a huge you believer. You had that experience? You had yeah. new tech developed for different shows before, right? Yeah, I mean, to a degree, I've worked with cameramen who have a, a kind of obsession with, you know, the Heath Robinson approach where it's yeah. like, okay, we're going to rock up in the field and we're going to like get some duct tape and bodge a whole lot of stuff together and then we're going to make this amazing thing. And it's it's just like, for me, that's just unacceptable. You know, you want to, you want to do the kit development work before you want a proven system that is, is actually... You're out there for weeks and hours and, you know, hundreds of hours in some cases. You want it to work when you hit record, right? Exactly, and, and, and do what it's supposed to do. And you don't want that thing to be taking up your, your attention. Your focus, yeah. <clears throat> Having anxiety about, is it going to work? Is it going to do what it's supposed to do at the right time? Exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways around that. You can have dedicated assistants who, you know, you're responsible for that. And, I mean, that's a key part of the role that they play. Um, but I think, you know, going forward, for me, it's, it's really becoming better at the craft of cinematography, the craft of storytelling within the context of natural history. And I'm also, you know, I am looking to, it's nice to dip into other types of things. I've recently worked on a, a project with a very good friend of mine, um, Craig Foster, on yeah, a film yeah. called My Octopus Teacher, which um, actually won, it's won best, thanks, mother. It won best feature at, what's it, um, EarthX. So EarthX, which is 2020. Yeah. So that was amazing because that's more a, a narrative story about... Oh, congratulations. <laughs> so so tough for Craig and, and Pippo, who was the director who works in it, uh, and a number of, a lot of other talented people. I mean, I just contributed some, not, not a lot, because they shot a lot of it as well. But gotcha. it is wonderful to work on other genres and other forms. 
um, because you do learn, you know, and you can take that application. I've done a, I've done a few commercials. Um, I just, I just can't like the whole process. I don't enjoy it. You know, the whole commit, all the people and the. I'm not surprised hearing you speak <laughs> about that at all. But if you're with someone who's really, you know, interesting and that, so I think it's important to learn from different things. And then I'm always like, I'm big on no film school. I mean, they've got great video clips of. I mean, it's such a cool. I get to hear you say that because I mean, one of the, you know. One of the things I'm always, again, like kind of telling people is like there's such a wealth of online resource. Be yeah. careful with which ones you go for, but just be smart about, you know, evaluate the resource. Evaluate who's saying what. Look at who's written the article. Look at what it's doing where. But it's, it's again, wonderful to hear you sort of speak about these things, the level you're operating at. It's like, right, I'm still committing time to resource. I'm still looking continually all learning. Time. All the time, like all the time. And then... You know, I mean, I've, I've even toyed with, like, getting hold of Roger Deakins and saying, listen, you know, like, we need some help in the natural history industry and, like, this is what we're doing. Like, can we have a chat? And, I mean, he probably would say, yeah, because he's a fantastic guy, you know. He's, he's such a cool guy. And, and he started in docs, which is, which is intriguing. And he has a, a real passion for that. But um, I agree with you. There's so, I mean, the, the level of, of technical resources, I mean, if you just systematically apply yourself to that, you know, you're going to get the intellectual, the theoretical training, and then it's just a case of applying that. And then I'm very big on feedback loops, Josh. Like, I really think it's important that you you try, you fail, you feedback, you know. And um, I always encourage that on shoots with, my, with people I work with. And often, you know, that's the beauty of modern technology is you can, you know, I can shoot something, I pull it up on the screen, put it on WhatsApp, and I'm sending it back to the director or whoever in Bristol. And literally within 20 minutes, I've got feedback, get back in the order, do it a bit different. So yeah, that's just a, such a testament to the uh, the technology side of things really helping you. One of the things I was actually going to say about, I mean, we've got twofold there was communication. But I, maybe first and foremost, so you caught me there on the feedback loop. You know, from your perspective, is there, you, do you have that, you know, is that just an internal feedback loop? You're evaluating your own thing or is it other sources, other people helping you evaluate? So it's both. So, you know, when I go through my rushes at night, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, log them all um, very briefly. But it's it's always looking at the shot, testing whether the frame rate's appropriate because, you know, that's a huge thing in terms of emotion. You, you, you don't want to like, you know, you never want the user to see that that animal is in slow motion, in my opinion. It must just, it must kind of all look seamless. So if you push in, you're going to go tighter. You're going to go faster with your frame rate. Um, so, you know, you work that out in the first couple of days of the shoot. And then always I'm looking at motivation. So like I'm, I make a note, like what is the motivation behind that shot? What am I trying to say? What is the motivation? And if there's no motivation, well then don't repeat that shot. Um, so yeah. You, I what you say, honestly, it's, it's this sort of thing I'm repeating time and time again. What is motivating your shot? If you're yeah. using a camera, if you're using a frame rate, if you're using a shutter speed, all these different things, what is the point? Why are you doing it? So it's really interesting to see that you're like evaluating that consistently as well. Yeah, so you know, it's 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 too easy in like natural history just to like watch the thing and film, and you know you can get away with that. But I mean, when you take it to the next level, I think the intentionality is really key. It shows. Fast, it really shows. Yeah, how, how fast you pan. You know, what are you doing? What are you trying to say? And then certainly, you know, I've I've got a, um, a number of producers I work with where there's a wonderful collaboration, and we we often like we'll we'll kind of go well, okay, so like we're gonna do. Um, it's a it's a kind of a chase scene. So like, are we going to do like a Roland sequence? You know, and so we'll reference like a Hollywood film because 
that gives you a, a whole kind of method, doesn't it? It gives you a kind of a visual language to try and replicate. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's the exact same thing we do, just on different levels. And like you said about experience, you just become more instinctual about it. You kind of go, rather than referencing a specific thing, you go, of course, the chase sequence, I need this coverage. Exactly. It's insane for you to think about it in natural history terms because you're literally covering a live event. I can't even comprehend the attention and you know, the amount of pressure in trying to get that coverage in that context. But amazing think, to think about it that way. And I think that's why you often like often come out and go like, oh man, it's like I can't watch this because you you know your ambition is really high. But you knew what you were trying to get, yeah. You often kind of get it wrong, but um, you know, and you do have times where the scene will repeat itself, and then you know, and then you do have more time. So like, there are a lot of natural history behaviors where you know it will repeat, and then you can kind of, and that's why the. The reflection, reflection is so critical because otherwise you just kind of shoot the same stuff. It must be Got fun going for that money shot the second time around though and getting it. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And, and it's always different because it's like, you know, and, 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 I, and I love that serendipity of, of um, you know, of, 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 of that. And I absolutely love that. I love the fact that it's not, um, I think I mentioned to you earlier, like the first take is always the best take. Like generally it's just raw and it's more real. And uh, so, yeah. Interesting to see that, yeah. The fact that you're that's that's how you're evaluating in most cases. Like the more you think about it, the more you get into it, actually it becomes less productive in terms of getting the quality, perhaps. I think so. And I mean, I, I you know, it's 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 when you shoot the same thing. So like often what happens is if you do a really good sequence on um, dolphins, for example, then you'll get employed to do dolphins again, you know, because people know that you are good at that. And in fact, right. Um, Thomas Peshak, who's a, a very talented National Geographic stills photographer, he, he's South African-German, um, and he gave me some advice when I was trying to get it new. She said, Roger, just do one thing really well. Like, choose one subject and just do it really well. I hear this advice quite frequently, I understand it. Yeah. <clears throat> so it kind of works, but, you know, the problem is you can get kind of bottlenecked into that. Um, so initially... I kind of got a reputation as being a, a blue water shooter. So like big events, you know, fast dynamic movement. Write this down for me, blue water. What's that? Yeah, kind of, you know, that sort of thing. And then obviously shooting the octopus sequence was more benthic, much more, um, you know, planning. Oh, these two terms, these are not necessarily familiar to me. Blue water. <clears throat> okay, so blue water, we'd refer to a scene where you can't see the bottom. So it's like, you know, you're out in the middle of the ocean, you may be in 200 meters of water, uh, super deep you know, like filming whales or whatever. And then benthic is when you actually, so the benthic is the bottom, the seabed. So a benthic sequence is where you're working. Oh, you might have to spell that for me. <laughs> oh, how do you spell it? Uh, so oh, I love benthic. that. Benthic. So it's benthic. Got it. That's all good. Benthic. That's how I'm saying it. Benthic. I've never heard the term before. Yeah. It's, so when we, when we shoot benthic sequences, you're often on a rebreather and we'll take down like, a full-on Runford Baker tripod under slow with or fluid head, and then you've and you've got a lift bag, and literally you 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 take your fins off, you've got your rebreather on, you've got comms, so you can talk to your buddy, and you've got comms down there. Yeah, it's like shooting wow. on land. So you, it's, it's almost like you walk around, so you pick up the tripod with the lift bag, you walk you walk along the bottom of the ocean, you put it down, and you film it. It's, 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 <laughs> I don't know why I'm as surprised as I am, but it just seems insane that that level of technology would work underwater of course it makes sense because you, you know, a big part of my conversation was like communication like how you even 
doing that you know so much on set is like we're shouting at each other half the time when we're not rolling to get things done and make sure things are moving so really fascinating to sort of even know how you communicate underwater yeah i mean i resist i resist underwater comms as much as possible a because you know the mask is not that comfortable and you're down there for a long time and right. i find that it breaks my concentration you mentioned and, the meditation earlier yeah yeah but if i'm in a situation where you know, with my assistant, then I, I just say, right, this is the deal. Like, you don't talk unless it's, like, absolutely critical and then you keep the talking to kind of a minimum. Um, but there definitely are instances where it's useful. But you can you, you can kind of work it out. And when you work with an assistant a lot, you become very in tune and, you, you know, you can kind of work things out quite a bit. They're not lighting for you generally. So it's really just helping you to move something into position and being your safety diver. The critical role that an assistant plays underwater is really as your safety um, are we talking which which side now? We're we talking about breathing, or we're we talking about like the physical dangers. Well, pretty much everything. So, like you know, just making sure that because you're so task loaded with your camera and you're filming, you know, you're more likely to. And again, you just want to be focused on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So your assistant generally, you know, they don't have a camera, um, and they, their job is to keep their eyes on you at all times. And yeah, sure, to make sure that there's nothing sneaking up behind you, or just to be another presence in the water. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I really appreciate hearing your hearing all the different intricacies of it because it is such a fascinating thing to me. And I also to hear there's so many different elements that are so like regular. Like you mentioned, Ron for baking tripods. It's like, what you're bringing a full size tripod underwater? Like, it's. I mean, I think I think Ronford actually does. If you go back to the history of the company, he actually one of the first things when he started them, it was like something that could actually work in water more more the legs than the the head. <clears throat> so we we actually we use the F4s because they you know they're a lot cheaper and um, they still do the job but, but they marinize them so you send them to Runford Baker and it costs about five hundred quid and they actually they kind of put slightly different seals on and bits and yeah it's like because the salt water would just destroy it immediately wouldn't it yeah and we get about generally you get about a hundred hours underwater and then you so they do still degrade they're not you know they're not bulletproof no no they definitely degrade and they, they get worked so you, you know you'll come out you'll just leave it soaking in, in fresh water overnight. Right. Like, but yeah, so you'll get about about a hundred hours, um, and then you got to send it back for a for a like a, a reboot, refresh. <laughs> but you can reuse them. It's not like you got to throw it away. No, no, you can reuse them, and it's wonderful. You know, it's like it's it's exactly so. You, you generally underslung, so because you want to be low on the eye yeah. level of the subject. So what you do is you you put you know you flip it around so the camera's oh, under- yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, and then you use it. It's like a tripod with a lift bag, and it's 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 it works really really well. Um, and you know, we're starting to. There's a lot of work going into sliders and underwater motion control, and so like, you know, one of the key challenges we face is keeping up with the visual language of drones, Cineflex, you know, all these things, which which yeah. is, is pretty phenomenal and and kind of accelerating all the time. I mean, Must have changed the game for you guys dramatically as well. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, in a way, we are underwater cineflexes and that we can move in three dimensions across three axes. But, you know, so... so it is on you to then have the physical control though, right? Exactly, which is why we tend to prefer really big, stable cameras, you know. Um, I mean, you can get a red and a really tiny little housing, but it's pretty... It's pretty useless because it's just it just you know it does this the whole time so but it gets us nice and naturally onto the conversation of kit to be fair i mean i'm aware that there's obviously a range of cameras and preferred sensors but obviously the actual technology to put it in an underwater housing is something entirely you know that's 
I haven't looked much into it, but I'm aware there's a handful of very different price ranges. But interesting to hear what your preference is, because I'm aware that obviously something like surfing and being in shallow water and being very dynamically moved around is something different. But I mean, please indulge me. I know you're the expert in this. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's um, you, you mentioned surf housing. So there you want something that's super light because a lot of the filming is out the water. So you want to lift the whole camera system out of the water and then, you know, get the shots. So for us, it's the exact reverse. What we want is something that's, well, what I want is something that's massively, um, obviously neutral. So like you let it go and it sits dead still in the water. It's not going to sink. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of perfect and it doesn't, it's not lopsided. It's it's literally perfectly bad. Okay, you were talking about landscape, landscape as well. Yeah, like in terms of your yeah. horizon. Trim. So like literally, you you know, spend a lot of time with little lead trim weights and you get the thing perfectly trimmed. Fascinating. For the, for the lens. And, and I wouldn't even think that was even possible, honestly. No, it's it's very doable. It's, it's a bit like balancing a camera on a, on a Ronin. Stabilizer, yeah. Gimbal, yeah. yeah. Get it perfectly sort of stabilized. Um, and I... Kind of, I remember Didier was always kind of used to bang on about like it must weigh at least 40 kilograms or what's that? It's like 80, 80, 90 pounds. It's a lot, yeah. A lot, yeah. So, I mean, if you remember when the first digital cameras came through, those things were like pretty beefy. You know, they were like, remember the old um, the Sony A900? Was the A900 or the Sony, Sony 900 or F900? Sony F900. That was a big old beast, you know, and the camera housings were really big. And we took my tape stuff in. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, and now with the reds, you know, getting so small. Um, that your preference then, your personal preference? Yeah, so so pretty much the reds have, have kind of completely taken over the natural history um, environment. And there's a number of reasons because the cameras that used to be used all the time, remember Vericam, Panasonic Vericam? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the Vericam, when I first got into the industry and, 2007 that absolutely dominated because it had the variable speeds so you could do 60 at hd and yes even less i don't know what it was it was i think it was a 720 you could do 60 frames okay second just laughable by by modern standards isn't it but it's like we were so grateful for that at the time (laughs) (laughs) do 30 frames at at hd so that was like very cam um then sony kind of brought out you know sony also very very good and then when RED came out, one of the critical innovations that they had was pre-record. Pre-roll, yeah. So yeah. you can, you can, uh, event can happen and you can have it rolling and then you can go, bosh, I got it, right? Exactly, which for us is, is obviously critical and a massive tool. And funny enough, the Sony, the F55 came out and that was kind of their response to the RED, you know, very modular and all these kind of things. It had post-record. So you, you pull the trigger and it started recording two seconds later. Uh-huh. Which is so funny because the F55 pretty much dominated uh, broadcast filming on domestic level. Like, <laughs> still no, probably like, does. I think it was using that, right? It's, it's, it was just unbelievable. And I remember the producers at the time desperately trying to get Sony to bring out a you know a patch to get that sorted. And I don't think they still don't have, I, don't, I, mean, I could be wrong, but... Anyway, in the interim... The technology exists in the slow-motion cameras like Phantoms and stuff for the pre-record because obviously when you're dealing with that many frames, you're dealing with so much data and like 1,000 frames becomes minutes and minutes and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then also I think, you know, Red are just... Yeah, they, you know, the, the dynamic range that you can pull out of that camera um, is, is pretty phenomenal. So, so I think the look that comes out of the camera, you know, 
are obviously arguable. The look that comes straight out of camera maybe is not as popular as like an Ari, which you know everyone kind of loves. But you know, so much of our stuff. I mean, Do you get much into the technical understanding of why that is, or you just leave that alone? Well, I think it's the color science, and I mean, I think I think you know, Ari have an incredible legacy of you know sophistication in terms of their whole. Making cameras for a hundred years is probably going to do you uh, some good. Exactly, and just and I just think the aesthetic, like their whole obsession with you know, yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a massive cultural kind of like underpinning behind that that whole camera system, which is which is pretty phenomenal. And also, I think for skin tones and things like that, they you know absolutely phenomenal, and that's the reason why they're so popular. But you know, in our world, the natural history world is is slightly different. People don't necessarily. You can get away with more to a degree because the palettes aren't as familiar, especially underwater. I mean, people just don't know what it looks like. So you can kind of grade it however you want it. Um, yeah, I had a conversation with a friend over in um, San Francisco, actually, and he was talking about the different sort of the different. He had an issue with the white balance and he, he was using underwater light. So it was quite different. But I, you know, I wasn't an expert, so I didn't profess to try and understand it. I was more trying to nitpick from what I was understanding as cinematography sides. But certainly he was understanding that looking at it wasn't right, it didn't look natural. I wasn't sure what was going wrong. Since then, looked into sort of different filtration for different depths. Is that a thing? Yeah, I mean, the filtration is is obviously a key because you lose, you know, as you go down, you lose your, your red light. And the light spectrum is changing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the astounding thing is, is like with the red. I mean, if you go down and I've got a dragon and a helium, and so either, you know, eight plus six. But I mean... You know, you, you, you frame up, like, for example, a kelp forest. You, you film something at, say, 10 meters. You pop up Red Cine X. You click on something which is, you know, the requisite gray or kind of off-white. And just, yeah. it's like off the charts. I mean, it's, it's kind of exactly as you'd see it, you know, if you had a 5, 6 Kelvin light down there. So, Interesting. You know, I think as long as you give, increasingly what I'm starting to do, though, is so we, we'll just normally shoot like 5, 6 as a default. Um, yeah. Kelvin. But increasingly what I'm doing is, is giving the grade, the grade is like some kind of reference. So I was going to say is use a card or anything like that. Yeah, you know, take a card down and just, you know, shoot the scene with, with the card so, so they can just get, have some kind of reference when, they, when they're grading. But, you know, I've seen the work that these guys have done you know, I shot some um, some whale footage for that Netflix off Cape Town, and to see it in the grade, like see the final product. I mean, these guys are just—I don't know why graders don't win BAFTAs and things. It's it's, it's criminal. They don't, they don't, I don't think there's a BAFTA for grading. If I'm honest, it's one of the things that I've actually taken a bit of a crusade on this show. Uh, we previously had an amazing colorist called Jack Tarney, and we've just actually done a pre-record with a gentleman named Tyler Roth, who works for Company Three out in Los Angeles, because yeah. it is like. I've never experienced anything quite like having my footage go like from this, what I've seen to right. this. And it's like, I didn't know that it was possible. Like what they can do with color information is just phenomenal. Yeah. And it's the, you know, it's the, it's the one, I mean, it's, it's the one area that I know, I mean, you, you know, they always teach you in management, like you've got to know what you're not good at. And like, I am like absolutely terrible with color. Like I know, I know it's good when I see it, but like when I try and do my own color stuff, like it's an absolute <laughs> nightmare. Like I just you didn't think about indulging it, getting some lessons. No, I mean I know I know how to use DaVinci Resolve. I know how to do all that stuff. But but the point is, is that I just you know what I mean. I, I just it doesn't work for me. So so yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that colorists are. I understand it's a different skill set. I'm kind of winding up a little bit. Like it's just it's interesting to hear from a cinematographer as well. Like again, because in the level you're operating at, it's like 
you know what? That's someone else's job. That is a specialized person that does that thing that makes that the best, you know, takes the negative essentially that you've, you've worked, you've given, you know, if you've done your job and you pass it onto that job and then it becomes what we're seeing on television. Yeah. Cause it's way more than just the technical aspects. It's all about the psychology of different colors, you know, different modalities. Cool. And I mean, it's a whole, it's, it's a craft. It's an incredible craft in its own right. Um, and it so, changes yeah. that emotional investment as well. Like you, like you said, you're, yeah. you're communicating different things with different tones and all these things and different palettes. Yeah. So yeah, just just like astounding how how good they are. I'm glad you're as blown away that as that as I am. To be fair, interesting. Oh, yeah, to see that. Like yeah, just to see that how much involvement you have in that process. Certainly. I mean, back to Kit for a second. That, <clears throat> that housing and stuff is that stuff that someone can go and get is it like it's readily available is it accessible to people i mean i'm talking about people that want to get into this because no doubt about it people have seen the show the various productions you've worked on i mean it's yeah. based, like blue planet very specifically because it just transformed people's imagination with these sorts of things no doubt inspired a bunch of people you know is this the sort of thing that people can get into or yeah i mean you know we, we are in the golden age of um golden age of television i mean Let's see what happens after COVID-19. But I mean, it's, you know, like there's no doubt we're in the golden age of television, massive demand. And in fact, COVID-19 is probably driving even more demand, correct? Because people at home more. Um, I'd say but, it's definitely employing more people to reevaluate what they've been up to before it. <laughs> Giving yeah. them some time to think about what they're doing with their lives, for sure. No, that's, that's certainly been the case with, with me as well. But the... Um, you know, the, the, so there's that. And then also the technology. I just see now that Netflix have approved the uh, Panasonic Lumix S1 as a kind of approved 4K. So what's that got to do now? It's bit, uh, color bit depth as well as resolution sensor native and stuff like that, is it? Yeah, it's a whole other criteria. It's like bit depth, um, bit rate, um, you know, it's, it's 6K. I think, it's, I think it shoots 4K, 60 frames per second. But I mean, Whatever, whatever sort of you know criterion they used, it's been approved now. And I mean, that's a three thousand dollar camera. Um, you can probably get a you know you're looking at about ten thousand dollars for a camera plus an underwater housing that you can shoot for Netflix. So you know it's 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 certainly not. It does sound a little bit expensive for a starter, but. <laughs> well, it, it is, but you can obviously work back from that in terms of like you could get a GH, you could halve that. I'm like, kind yeah. of kidding, yeah, of course. Also, I mean, Josh, you know, I, I remember... But also downplaying the, what we've been kind of like playing, well, downplaying the craft side of it, you know, the reality is, you know, I guess more of my conversation might be once you've dealt with that element of it, is the water side of it. You know, where do you even begin with that considering how much experience you've kind of unconsciously done? I don't know. You know, I think I think that that I think that that can come relatively quickly if you apply yourself. You know, you've just got to put the time in the water. I mean, you know, there's that whole thing saying of ten thousand hours to become an expert, but you can become pretty damn proficient like a lot quicker. So, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I've seen people who've gone on freediving courses and gone from like zero to twenty meters in one day. Twenty meters is it's pretty deep. You know, twenty sounds meters. Terrifying. I'm not. I'm, I'm holding it in now, but that sounds terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you should go down to that. There's that tank. I think the tank's still operational. Is that like military? I've got that somewhere down in. Is it? Is it um, not in Devon? But some one of your ports. Uh, is like a. It's a 30 meter like chamber where you can go and freediving, and they do freediving courses down there. And I guarantee you, you'll get down to like 
50, unless you've got ear issues, but you'll get down to like 50. Well, like we've got to follow up in this conversation because it is somewhat a conversation that keeps coming up at the moment. <laughs> it's, 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 it's such a, it's, you know, it's, it's totally learnable. Like everyone can hold their breath for four minutes if they just apply themselves. Like it's not difficult. And then it's just a question of, you know, getting comfortable with the water and the training. And it's such a wonderful journey in a way. To, and you are making it sound very easy, if I'm honest. Well, yeah, I mean, some people will struggle, but I mean, I honestly don't believe that it's 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 that difficult. I really don't. Like, oh, and from your mouth, it's definitely good to hear that information. Certainly. No, I mean, I, no. When I think where you know some guys are, I mean, the deepest I've ever free dived is like fifty meters. I mean, you've got guys that are doing like 120, 130. I mean, what's the record? Are you aware of it? I can't remember what the. Um, I think. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of out of it now. I mean, I used to be very into the competitive yeah. diving. I know the guys are doing like over 100 meters, no fins, which means swimming down and swimming back up with no fins. So, yeah, I think it isn't it close to. It's something scary. I know that much, but considering 20 meters is scary to me, I'm thinking anywhere anywhere near 100 meters is like when you're beyond kind of like relative line of sight, and you're like it's going further than I can see, especially underwater when the light dissipates so fast. Just the idea that is. I think I think the 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 no limits, which is where you get pulled down and you come back up on a balloon, that's close to a thousand feet, which is three hundred meters. So like, come on, and I mean, you you know, like anyone should be able to get to twenty. <laughs> <laughs> With that perspective, I'm not going to feel like a fool if I don't, for sure. <laughs> yeah, give it a try. Well, mate, I'll definitely take you up on that advice. Well, what's next for you? I mean, we've, you know, I've kind of hinted and danced around what you've been working on with Blue Planet 3, but what is next? What's literally happening for you in the immediate? Uh, there's, there's, um, there's, there's a, you know, there's a, there's an incredible, um, um, I wouldn't say glut of work, but there's a huge demand in the industry. So it's obviously a great time to, to be a cameraman. Yeah. Um, Difficult in the sense that we can only sell so many hours. So it doesn't really make a difference in the sense that, you know, I only really want to do 150 days away, but it does mean that you get to sort of choose and pick a little bit to a degree the shoots that you want to do in the location. So, um, yeah, I've been doing some work on, on Canada 3, which is obviously struggling, must be struggling a bit at the moment. You know, yeah, of course. And then there's, yeah, there's a Netflix of commissioned a really big series, um, which I'm very interested in and I'm talking to the executive the showrunner about doing, you know, a lot of work on that. And I think that's, that's also kind of, um, an intriguing when you get to that sort of position where you kind of ask to not DOP because it doesn't really work like that. It's always you know multiple people, but is is to is to sort of work almost exclusively on a series so that you can you can you know you can create a more consistent style and influence things and, and whatever. So that yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Like at that yeah. point, I'm I'm kind of having this conversation quite frequently as well because with the way things evolve, I'm, I'm very grateful to hear that you're not suffering these sorts of things but certainly it's sort of lower budget productions it's like the amount of times someone might go oh we'll just fight we'll hire five camera operators instead of a director of photography plus a few camera operators and i'm sure that you've done both in that regard and it's interesting to see the disparity with those things um where would you see that your role actually changes in that regard um I think you know the, the the DOP concept, like as it, as it exists in sort of in, in features, and that as I understand it, to be a DOP from a legal perspective, you have to employ all the cameramen below you. Is that correct? 
<laughs> you kind of responsible for them in a way. Like I'm not sure if that's how. Yeah, yeah technically your crew. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so like from you, a legal you would bring your crew for sure. You would bring your operators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So like so like from a legal perspective, to get that sort of thing, you are you know you take so it's a whole different kind of legal structure. I mean, our our one is is more you know freelance kind of camera operators. It's a different model. Um, and as I say, we have a director producer. That's kind of one person. You don't have. That was that. interesting. Yeah, that's a new revelation as well. I wouldn't have necessarily known that. So. So, but I mean, very much the same. Like you know, my relationship as a camera operator, a kind of DOP with the, with the director, would, would be very similar to the one that you'd have on like the Revenant or whatever. A similar kind of thing where you're trying to solve their problems, you know, visually and cinema, uh, from a cinematography perspective. Yeah, yeah. But every every director is different. Some are more old school. They're not as explicit about the cinematography language it's just more an implicit thing i think that's uh, across the board isn't it everyone has a different way of communicating some are better than the others and some will expect you to do more of that than others i think it's quite works but i think you know the the uh, there's always a degree of and i saw this with the older school of cameramen they were very kind of competitive and more like you know like kind of um not sharing information and whatever, whereas like... I hate it, man. I hate that side of things. <clears throat> yeah, it's a kind of a defensive gestalt, whereas, you know... Like, um, you're after my job, so I'm not going to tell you anything about how to do it. Exactly, exactly. So there's definitely that generation, and then, you know, increasingly coming up now, it's much more of a collaborative thing. So, I mean, I collaborate extensively with, like, Doug Anderson, who I'd, I'd probably rate as pound for pound the best underwater camera in the world. Well... Um, that is that is a uh, statement coming from you, mate. He's a British. He's a British cameraman, um, and then we've actually. Uh, I'm super delighted because we've been nominated for a BAFTA together now. Amazing. Uh, yeah, for 2020. So we actually did the like the the acceptance speeches things on our phones. I did them this morning. You know, so we had. No to way. I saw it's fresh. That's really cool. Like Doug is Doug's a wonderful guy, and he's he's also been so supportive. I mean, he's my age. I got into the industry, or he's younger than me. I got into the industry after him, but he was just like so supportive, and it makes such a difference, doesn't it? When people that have you know proven, they just say, "Hey, man, you you can do this," you know. And honestly, it's wonderful to hear that that's the relationship you guys have, and it's something that I at least try to stick to myself whenever I'm working with people. I just try and <laughs> if someone's got questions, I know it's not always the easiest thing to do because it's so practical. It's so learning and doing. Like you're doing something, you're going somewhere, and it's like, right, you're learning the thing on the job, and that makes sense. If I tell you how to do this before we got here, you wouldn't have understood. That's nothing on you. You just won't have got it. You know, no. you, you, there's so much about the theory element of it, which you just simply can't even no. try and help someone comprehend. But it's really great to hear that there's that support network within that. And it's, again, I think it showed with the results. I don't even think, I know it showed the results, definitely. Yeah. But by the same token, it's like it's still super competitive. Like it's still like a you know what I mean, which is which is also key because you want to be stretched. You know, you want to be you want to be kind of like constantly trying to like raise the bar, and then they raise the bar, and you sort of show me what you've got, and it's oh. it's a friendly rivalry, right? Rather yeah. than it's yeah. totally, and it's, it's it is wonderful. But I mean, and that's the same with um, you know Hugh Miller, another very talented British cameraman, um, and obviously Didier. You know, I, 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 I chat to you quite a bit, but. And there's, there's a lot of younger guys coming up. There's guys in the U.S. as well that are, you know, really talented. Because that's the thing. It's like a whole next generation of guys that are coming through. Um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's easier to be this way in, in an industry where it is, you know, where there's a lot of work. 
but also you re- definitely reach a stage where you kind of you feel confident and you, you kind of know, you know, and it's just wonderful to help and and kind of stretch other people as others have stretched you. So that is great to hear. It's honestly really really wonderful to hear you say these sorts of things. Are you, yeah. you do you have apprentices and people that you work for work with as mentors and stuff as well? Or oh, I mean. You know, not not on a kind of consistent basis, but there's you know there's a couple of guys in the states um, that I've been working with. Jeff Hester is one of them, and um, there's uh, a couple of guys in South Africa that I've you know they've started their rebreather training. I'm going to be doing some work with them, and you, know, you just increasingly see yourself in them, like when you were their age, and and uh, it's just it's just kind of cool to you know work with them and and just see see their progression and see yeah. their and also remember, like we learn from them. I mean, you want to be, you want, you want these youngsters like snapping at your heels as well because they force you to raise your game. And, and it's just if you can keep it in that kind of virtuous circle, then I think it's a very constructive thing. But yeah, I agree. Like when it gets nasty and people, back, that's that's not not cool. Ah, oh, mate, that's why it's nice to hear these things. And I guess going back to that perspective conversation as well, when you're encouraging someone else to see the world through their own eyes, you're just going to see it through their own eyes and see suddenly that is an opportunity you get to experience through someone else. And the fact that you're a part of that situation must be, must be incredibly rewarding. Yeah, and I think it's something that, you know, if I draw on my experience of corporate and then the film industry, or, or not really the film industry, but more this, yeah. it's a wonderful thing about our craft is that we, you know, we, we, you get to work generally with relatively small teams. Even if it's a big team, you're kind of in a small team. And what I love about it, Josh, is that you, you know when you've kind of like, you know when you've got it right, you know, and you know when you've got it wrong. Things are pretty transparent. Um, I've seen guys that are trained on, on feature films and that. I mean, the pressure on those sets, you know, like everyone. Because you can imagine, like, someone makes a mistake and it's it's like, it's a huge cost, you know. So, well, the funny thing is, you know, with anyone doing any of those kind of narrative pieces, I do my best to keep a good attitude on set, yeah. which is very much everyone makes mistakes. You know, everyone's here. You're for sure you're accountable. I don't want you messing up left, right and centre. But let's learn from it because you put that pressure on these kind of people. And guess what? They're going to get worse. They're going to get more stressed out. And it's going to be a miserable environment for everyone. You know, it's just interesting to hear those kind of things. Like, you know, you hear about those tyrannical sets and for sure it happens because the pressure is there, especially when you're dealing with someone else's dime, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it's just it's interesting to hear you talk about that as if that's like the worst pressure scenario. And I'm, you know, I'm hearing about the situations you guys are dealing with where you've got to capture such a small event and you're there for weeks and weeks if you don't get it then you've got to go back it's like <laughs> no i guess it's just it's like you know it's, it's it is it's like different things but um i think i think underneath that is is what i you know what you can't hide in our industry and i, and I think that's a good thing is, is that sure you can make mistakes and you but it's 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 very clear there's a, there's a, it's kind of clean you know what i mean i, I don't know if i clear myself well whereas when i was in corporate you like you're chasing profits, you're chasing this, and it's this never-ending cycle. Yeah. Whereas we work on something and there's, a, there's an end product and we're kind of all involved in it to a degree. And it, I think there's something very powerful um, in that being involved in that creative process, which is very psychologically rewarding. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear as well that you actually are involved in that creative control process and it's collaborative, it's properly collaborative. It's not, like I said, it, trying to get at earlier, it's like, well, does the job as the camera operator differ from the DOP in your field? And it's somewhat understanding it's not necessarily too far apart because at the same point in time you might be having a conversation with the director producer in terms of understanding their ambition of what it might be but you're very much in control of that regardless of what your role is and it's interesting to see where those te- your you know your team comes together and that's a collaborative goal and the result again of that is 
you know, it speaks for itself. Well, there's a wonderful, um, I think, who is it, Deleuze or one of these French thinkers who says, like, there's never one wolf, there's only wolves. So, like, wolves only exist in packs. Like, that, you, you cannot understand a wolf, like, as a lone wolf, really, because it just actually doesn't, you know, we talk about it, but it doesn't exist. And, no, I think, yeah, it's a foreign concept. It's not real. Yeah, and I think I was, I was, I was shooting now on, on doing the Great White Shark, and I had this young scientist who has um, done a lot of works with, with Great White, so he knows the animals really well. So he was on the pole cam. You know, I was just, I had my monitor, big 19-inch monitor, and I was just directing him. But, I mean, you know, after a while, he was really good, and he was he was intuitive. He was, you know, after a bit of direction, you become one entity. You basically, and I think that's, you know, camera operator, DOP, it's, it's, huh. it's you become this kind of, you know, you, you work together as an assemblage rather than individuals. And, and, and Well, absolutely. That, it's something I can relate to within our world. So it's great to hear that you have that sort of yeah, symbiosis, I guess. Yeah, and I remember, funny enough, um, with Didier in the cave, we were filming a you know, big crocodile, and I was lighting for him. I love that. With Didier in the cave, we were filming this big crocodile. <laughs> and I remember like, the, like, getting goosebumps because, I mean, it was afterwards, but just the concentration around you know, having to light for him and then trying to anticipate his shots. And you can't communicate because it's all... You know, it's all it's all verbal, but just that wonderful responsibility that you have to assist someone to create this beautiful imagery. You know, you're not shooting it, but you enlightening it, really it. Kind of art, you know. So it's I love that about our craft is that it, it is on many levels. It's a, it's this it's a dance. You know, it is a I talk about the dance with animals, but it is a dance with your your colleagues. And I was certainly curious about that uh, that you know example earlier. You mentioning a dance, but I guess it makes sense now within this context. It's like it's a manipulation of all these different things in timing, in a relationship, in coexistence, so that the things all marry up at the right time, right? Exactly. No, and I mean that. Like when that happens, it's it's like you know it's an incredible feeling, you know. When because I guess it's it's almost like you know people in oh. harmony. It's, it's it's a kind of like a, a mythical state where you you know you achieve this synchronicity, and you all come together for that moment, and you produce something that is astounding, and and, and it's. It's there to be seen, you know. Um, well, evidence speaks for itself, and it's incredibly infectious. Even talking to you about it, I'm like, I want to get out there now. I want to get all this stuff. I want to go and get involved. Yeah. You're gonna have to let us know if you're in the UK anytime. We'll go and have some fun. <laughs> well, Josh, I will. And I mean, I, I'm often over in the UK, so I, obviously not, not so much this year. But I mean, things will open up. So yeah, it'd be great to connect, and maybe we could go spearfishing down in Devon. Oh okay. hell yeah! I'm absolutely all over that. <laughs> I know we've cut, we touched on so many bases here and I'm honestly incredibly grateful for you sharing so many of these experiences with us because it is just, you know, it just helps paint the picture of really what's involved in your job. And the reality is how much respect you have to have for the craft in order to get to where you're at. And, but at the same time, so, so much of it is accessible. You know, the answers, as far as I can interpret, are about just kind of dedication, get out there, do, commit, and then just continue. I mean, is there any advice for anyone out there about the network side of it? Is there any way to get involved with the people side of things? Because obviously there's one thing that's the you know, aptitude and the commitment. But the other side of it, is that just like kind of being in the right place at the right time? Or is it just you commit and it, the opportunities will arise? I mean, I think it's both. You know, I think that, you know, it all goes back to intentionality. You know, we spoke about intentionality of a shot. And I think, you know, the intentionality of, of your what you want to do in your career is, is fundamental. So, um you know, and I remember a friend of mine, Justin, Justin McGuire, said to me that, you know, rather be the T-boy in the industry you want to be in than the CEO of an industry you don't. 
So there's no doubt that like it's all about connections. So I mean, just if you find out, you know, people that work for companies, and and, and you've got to have grit. You know, you've just got to be gritty and try and find some way in there. And it's going to take time, but it's it creates it creates opportunities because so often. You know, it's whoever's top of mind. Oh, we need someone to go and do this. And it's like, there's probably six or seven really competent, talented people who've, who've, who've put their hand up. But the last person who puts their hand up gets the job, you know, just because it's life works like that. So, <clears throat> yeah, my encouragement is just to, you know, try and seek out the best people, or, you know, some of the people and, and just persistently try and create opportunities. Um, Incredible advice. Honestly, it's one, again, yeah. music to my ears because it is just really that isn't it grit get out there get into you know get out and do it with intention yeah. know where you want to be but i love the bit of value uh, <laughs> be the t-boy in the company you want to work for rather than ceo in the company you don't want to work for it makes yeah it's, it's and you know if you if you if you have the capacity and you apply yourself you will rise up to whatever level you destined to rise to based on your intention and application but um yeah i know some confidence though just got to get at it right mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, funny thing with, with uh, Hugh Pearson, who I've worked with a lot, and, um, you know, we had this kind of joke about, like, if you're going to fail, fail big. And really what that talks to is the, you can't be scared of failure. Like, you just you can't be. You know, you, you can't be scared of rejection. You've just got to, like, you've just got to go, you know. And, and if you fail, you pick yourself up and try and fail even harder. You know? Incredible advice. Not so easy to take sometimes. Failure can get pretty scary for some people, but... <laughs> No, and I mean myself included. It's 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 been a journey of, you know, um, opening up and becoming more conscious and aware. But um, yeah, and it's it's yeah, it's been a wonderful journey. But I mean, that's, that's not what you have to do. You know, you've really got to like open yourself up to the stuff. And and just grit is key. You know, you've got to have grit. I'm a, I am absolute. Yeah, I'm the person that throws himself in the deep end. So I'm fully on board with that as well. <laughs> well, honestly, thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. Um, it's been a wonderful experience honestly because there's just so much that we've gone into and for sharing everything that you've been you know involved with and everything as well so and congratulations on everything as well you know I uh, guess it doesn't happen too many times that you get to hear that but like seriously congratulations on the success of everything no uh, thanks Josh and yeah it's just, it's, it is it's something that I'm, I'm very grateful for and um, yeah it's it's but uh, you know I do feel just that, that desire to constantly iterate and grow. And I mean, you know, there's just so much more I feel that, you know, I love to talk about gradients. Like there's a guy, Peter Schlitterdijk, who wrote a book called You Must Change Your Life. It's, it's, it's kind of, he's a, I don't know, he's this philosophy guy somewhere, but. I'm intrigued, I'm intrigued. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. He wrote a book called The Critique of Cynical Reason, like way back, which I read when I was a student, which was, which was quite fascinating. But um, this whole book really is about how the human condition to be human is to be stretched. Like, you know, it's always like, okay, you're here, but you need to be here. And that's kind of how civilizations control people as well, you know, through various ideologies and ways of thinking or whatever. But it's such a fascinating thing is, is like, you know, and if you think of yourself as a ball of like gradients, you know, it's like, where do you want to be? Do you want to be like there or do you want to be here? And to be here, you've got to kind of experience there and there. And being there and there is often like not cool. <laughs> Pretty uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, but it's a cool philosophy because it makes you realize that often, you know, the greatest learnings come from the darkest times when you're in the charnel ground and like everything's blown up and, you know, in whatever sphere it is, your relationships, your work, your whatever. So, yeah, it's, 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 um, 
it's I really encourage people to like explore their gradients, you know. And I and I think oh, man, you're a man after my own heart. Seriously, it <laughs> makes perfect sense to me when you talk about these different things. For sure, it makes so much sense. A lot of trouble, but it's um, <laughs> it's it's. What is the point in being here if you're not going to get in trouble? Exactly. So it's about finding your kind of you know your spectrum on the gradient, like how far how you know you know you know. That's, that's and how often you can be in those places, I guess, right? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. What a pleasure. Honestly, Roger, thank you very much. Yeah, we'll absolutely let you get back to your family. If you've only got, a, you know, if you're only home for a certain, amount, a certain amount of days of the year, you want to go and enjoy that time with those guys. Yeah, I know. Two little girls are uh, six and nine, so they're just such a beautiful age as well. Really cute. Uh, it must be tough juggling the time between shoots and yeah, those days, right? I miss, they miss you. It's, 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 um, uh, it's made it a lot harder to be away. But, I mean, you, you kind of work with it. They, they do get it, but... Um, yeah, it must be cool for them seeing their stuff, their dad's stuff on TV, there, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they still at that know. age. Can they? Can they uh, figure it out? Kind of, but um, you know, maybe one day. You know, take. I, I kind of say to them, I'll take them to the bathroom. You'll be a has been by then, mate, and they'll be like, you'll be like, that's my stuff on. Whatever, dad. Exactly. Exactly. See ya. <laughs> cool. Roger, honestly, thank you so much again. I know I keep saying it, but I'm a very, I'm very, very grateful for your time and grateful for your wisdom and your knowledge as well. It's really great to hear. Isn't it? No, great to chat, and yeah, it's always, you know, I always love the, the backwards and forwardsing, and yeah, I've really enjoyed it and enjoyed this conversation. So, yeah, thanks, Josh. An absolute pleasure to have Roger Horrocks on the show, and I look forward to indulging more time into the depths of this particular part of the industry. I mean, uh, you know, my brain is just firing on all cylinders. It's so like, I want to get in the water. I want to get myself underwater housing. I started following all of the underwater housing companies on Instagram, checking them out all the time. I could work for my camera. I could buy this. I could buy that. So it's just, that is trouble written all over it anyway. But for, for Roger to find out that he was capable of that level of filming at that point in life, obviously with his previous water experience, and, you know, to have what an incredible internship from Didier who worked with Jacques Cousteau. What on earth? Anyway, I've no doubt that that experience has contributed to his outlook on life and, you know, his willingness to share his story. So I'm indebted to him for sharing that with us. Next up, though, we've got to move on. We're a weekly show. <laughs> we've got the much anticipated, I've been talking about it for weeks, we've got Tyler Roth from Company 3. He's a senior colorist there. He has worked on everything from feature docs, feature films, music videos, commercials, the whole thing. Um, he breaks down the colour processes that are working on Black Widow, uh, the latest Marvel movie he worked on, and what it's like to work just generally at the top, looking down the rest of us. <laughs> he is a gentleman though, so looking beyond that, looking to the future, I can announce that we're catching up with Film Roundtable's Doug Torres. Uh, he's a first assistant director, he's been at, at that job for decades. But um, you know, he's responsible for bringing Reed Morano and Bradford Young into the same place to have some incredible conversations. I'm super excited. But go and check out go, you know, Film Roundtable if you get a chance. Otherwise, I shall catch you next time. Thank you, as always, for coming to hang out. And, uh, yeah, that's that.